We will be looking together at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. As you locate our text this morning, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, let me note two common misperceptions about the wise men who visited the baby Jesus. First of all, there probably was not three of them. We know there is more than one because they are wise men, not a wise man. But the only reason to speculate that there were three was because of the gifts that they brought. There were three gifts. But the text does not indicate a number of men. Uh, Secondly, contrary to what you see in a typical nativity scene, the wise men were not standing around the manger with the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth. They actually arrived later, not finding the family in a place where animals bedded down, but in fact they found Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in a house. Now, I don't think it detracts from a nativity scene to portray three wise men standing around newborn uh, baby Jesus. The scene, after all, is symbolic. But I point out these misconceptions as a reminder to us to read the text carefully, because what is actually in the Bible is more wonderful and more applicable to our lives than what we assume is there. And that is no truer than when it comes to the birth narrative of the Son of God. This morning we will consider the birth of Jesus from the perspective of the wise men. So please look with me as I read, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him... Report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is God's word. First of all, in our text this morning, I want us to see the necessity of worship. The necessity of worship. The Magi, or the wise men, as some translations have it, saw a star in the east. 
The star that captured their attention was not in the east. They were. That is, they lived east of Israel. They were looking west. The word magi described a certain caste of men who studied astronomy. Uh, Do not think of astronomy as a science in our modern understanding of someone who studies the stars and all that has to do with space. Instead, astronomy in the ancient world was related to astrology. Astrology is the study of the movement of stars and what is believed their relationship to human affairs and to the future. In general, magi were men who dabbled in the, in the magical arts, they interpreted dreams, and they promoted what we would call reading your horoscope. They were closely associated with the occult, including sorcery. In fact, we get our English word magic from the word magi. Now, most of you are probably wondering about such practices because we know anything having to do with sorcery or the occult is forbidden by Scripture, yet these men devoted their time to such things. So, a little history of the origins of the magi will be helpful at this point. The first magi appeared in the 7th century BC, that is 700 years before the birth of Christ, And they appeared as one tribe within the Median nation, which was located in eastern Mesopotamia, that would be modern-day Iraq. Many historians believe that the Magi were originally descended from Noah's son, Shem. Noah had three sons that came off the ark with him, Shem being one of them, which makes them Semites. That's where we get the word Semite. So Hebrew and, and, and Arab peoples are both descendants of Shem. Originally, the Magi were monotheistic, meaning they worshipped one God, and they became, over time, this priestly class who practiced an animal sacrificial system. They most likely worshipped the God of Israel, at least in their origin, in their beginning days, though probably in some distorted form. By the time Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invaded Judah, over a hundred years after the first record of a class of Magi, they had become the most influential advisors to the king of Babylon. In fact, we read in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3, that a man named Nergal Serizer the Rabmog accompanied Nebuchadnezzar when he captured Jerusalem. I won't say that name again. This man who's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39 He was the chief of the Babylonian Magi, that he personally accompanied Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem gives us an idea of how much power and prestige the Magi commanded in the Babylonian court. If you recall, Daniel chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that Daniel, who was in exile from Judah, taken to Babylon as a young man, that he received training in literature and languages in Babylon in order to prepare him to directly serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So when all the wise men, including the Magi, were unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel succeeded in doing so. And this resulted in Daniel being promoted. This is Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. He was promoted as the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. In other words, 
Daniel basically became the head magi. Now I want you to think about this. Here's Daniel, roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ. He's a worshiper of the God of Israel. He's highly influential in the court of the king. The other magi would have learned from Daniel about the prophecies contained in the Old Testament. Uh, They would have heard about the chosen one who would also be the king of the Jews. And even with their distorted teachings and their magical arts and their astrological practices, this knowledge of truth that they learned from Daniel was passed down through the ranks of the Magi through the centuries. And this is why we read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They were waiting for him who was to be born king of the Jews. And then suddenly, an anomaly appears in the sky. It was a new star. People who derive or devote their lives, I should say, to studying the stars, they notice when something is different in the night sky and they notice this new star. Well, the question is, why did they even link a strange new star to a newborn king? And that again goes back to Daniel and his teaching in Babylon centuries before about the coming king. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the Old Testament book of Numbers, it reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Old Testament prophecy. The Magi in Persia, to the west, they see a new star in the east. They knew that was the direction of Israel. They knew a baby, according to Scripture, would be associated with a star. And then he would also be a scepter out of Numbers 24, which is symbolic language for a king. And so they put two and two together, and they believed what God had promised some 1,500 years before, during the time of Moses, that that had come to pass now. And to get from Persia, which is that whole area you see on your screen here, to get from Persia was no short or easy journey. Yet this group of Magi, they were determined. And what were they determined to do? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. I want you to reflect on that. Here are men men who had a knowledge of God and His Word, but were not necessarily worshipers of God. They, like many in our day and time, knew of God, but did not personally know God. They did not have a relationship with Him. Yet, and this is a challenge to us, their knowledge of Scripture, particularly prophecy, was impressive. In spite of what they did not know, they left their homes. They undertook a multiple hundred mile arduous time consuming trip in order to find a baby who they believed would one day be king and to worship him. 
they grasp that this baby deserves worship. Since only God deserves worship, somehow these magi understood that the baby was divine. After 2,000 years of theological reflection on our part, we are still trying to unpack how it is the creator of heaven and earth, the uncontainable and limitless God, became a man contained and limited by human flesh and became the most vulnerable of human beings, a helpless baby. Yet, without all the benefit of insight we enjoy, without the inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the privilege of every Christian, these magi knew enough to know when they found this baby and find they must. He deserves worship. There is a deep, God-given, core-level desire in every human being to worship. If you do not worship the only being worthy of ultimate praise, God Himself, you will find something else to worship. The necessity of worship. Many people, they wait all year long for Christmas. I know some who start shopping for gifts in July. And when the season finally rolls around and they get involved in all the activity that goes along with it, it can almost seem like worship of the holiday. Can it not? If what you worship receives your time, energy, and devotion, is this not a risk? We risk missing worshiping the king of the Jews because we might fall into the trap of worshiping the event, supposedly commemorating it. These wise men, they were wise because they knew where to focus their worship. That which consumes your time, your resources, your energy, and your passion, that is what you worship. The Magi spent their time on a long journey They gave of their resources and energy and they directed their passion all so they could worship the King of the Jews. There are, in fact, many different expressions of worship. You can worship in every circumstance, regardless of where you are, regardless of what activity you might be engaged in. Because worship simply means to declare the worth of something. And you are always declaring the worth of something. But make sure in whatever you are doing or whatever you're saying, you are ultimately seeking to declare the worth of God. We are hardwired to worship God. And it's evident from the journey and the destination that the Magi were focused on the right object. Though everyone worships, and some find the only object worthy of worship, There is also, besides the necessity of doing so, the denial of worship. The denial of worship. Herod the Great's reputation as a capable leader, orator, administrator, and builder is well-deserved. He was also adept 
at the political game. So much so that he was able to stay in good graces with Rome and typically get along with the Jewish leadership. He provided for his people during times of famine. And he is the one, Herod the Great, who began extensive renovations on the temple in Jerusalem in 20 BC, which is over 15 years before the probable date of Jesus' birth. When Jesus went to the temple at 12 years old, he went to Herod's temple. This temple that was originally rebuilt under Ezra's leadership when the exiles returned from Babylon, it was improved upon, it was expanded by Herod, and that's why it came to be referred to as Herod's temple. Herod, however, he was not Jewish. He was an Edomite. He married a wealthy and well-placed Jewish lady to try to make himself more acceptable to the Jewish population. But Herod was very insecure about the fact that he was not fully accepted by the Jews, and he was seduced by a love of power. He also imposed heavy taxes on the people, which I guess you have to do if you're going to undertake these lavish projects. Already, always assuming someone was conspiring against him, Herod became mentally worse as he grew older due to a disease which affected his mind and which served to increase his paranoia. Augustus, the Roman emperor, remarked, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod murdered his wife, he murdered his mother-in-law, and he murdered three of his sons, one of which was to succeed him on the throne. That's how paranoid he was for his position. The Magi, they traveled to where they thought was the most logical place to find out about a baby born king of the Jews. Jerusalem, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I should say so. He was not technically a Jew. To hear that a potential and legitimate rival king was around deepened his insecurity, exacerbated his paranoia. You know, people that are in power, they will go to great lengths to preserve that power. But we also read in verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. It's an interesting phrase. And there are two ways to look at it. All of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. First way to think about it would be like this. The Magi's long and difficult journey meant they traveled in a caravan. This was probably not three men on three camels, but however many Magi there were, along with multiple animals for carrying supplies over a great distance, and whatever attendants traveled with them would have been in this caravan. And if you think about a foreign party from the east suddenly arriving and asking about, asking about a new king, that could very well cause the inhabitants of Jerusalem some unease. Was this perhaps an advanced team of scouts for a future invasion? But another way to think about this phrase, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him, is to think about 
how people in Jerusalem would have heard it knowing how paranoid Herod the Great was. Here's a man who kills his own family members if he suspects disloyalty or a conspiracy. So how is he going to react when he learns of a foreign contingency asking about another king of the Jews? It's not going to be pretty, that's for sure, and everybody knows it. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so what does Herod do? Well, consistent with his character, he first of all gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people in order to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. That's verse 4. The Old Testament consistently links the Messiah to the true king of Israel. And this is why Herod does not ask where the king is to be born. He doesn't ask that. He asks where the Messiah is to be born. But he knows he must be careful. And so initially he acts genuinely interested. Herod understands if the promised Jewish Messiah and Davidic king really has come onto the scene, his days as king of the Jews are numbered. Yet, he cannot openly oppose the expected and anticipated Messiah. At least, he can't do that until he finds out where he is. And so for his plan to work, Herod must secretly call the Magi. And it's from them that he learns when exactly the star from their home in the east first appeared. Contrary to the greeting cards that showed the, the wise men riding on camels across the desert, following the star, this heavenly sign actually disappeared. And it would not reappear until the Magi would need to see it again. So Herod asked, when did it appear? It's been several months since they started off on their journey. But their answer gives Herod the information he wants. When this so-called king was born. It's never wise to oppose the will of God. Herod, like every human being on planet Earth, he will worship something. What he tells the Magi is that once he has located the child, he too will come and worship him. What Herod means in his heart is that he will come to kill him. We recoil, and rightly so, at the very idea of presuming to try to nullify the prophecies and the promises of God, as Herod is trying to do. But the reason that he has no fear of God is the same reason he denies God worship. Herod does worship something. He worships himself. He worships himself. Herod knew the Old Testament. He even consulted it to find out accurate information that he planned to use against God's anointed. Herod knew of the God of Israel. He was spending incredible amounts of taxpayer money in order to add on to the temple so that he would go down in history as one of the great architectural giants of the ancient world, which he did. Herod loved the praise of men. 
and he protected that praise at all costs. And he was not afraid to use every means at his disposal in order to achieve his goals. He is the fulfillment of Romans 121. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The Magi sought the king of the Jews in order to worship him. Herod sought the king of the Jews in order to remove him so that he could continue to worship himself. Herod's affliction, unfortunately, is not unique to him. Even though we do not have the power and the wealth of Herod the Great, we have the same tendency, the same dark pull to deny worship to the only one worthy of it. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not matter if you pretend to worship the true king or simply drop the facade and pour your heart into anything and everything besides him. At the end of the day, left to our own sinful devices, we worship ourselves. We make ourselves the final judge of what is right and wrong and true and false and just and unjust. The first temptation, you will be like God. You will be like God. Not only means that you live independently of God, it also means you will worship yourself as a God. To depend upon yourself is to declare yourself worthy of honor. To depend on God is to declare Him worthy. Dependence on God is worship. So is dependence on yourself. It's just misplaced worship. If you worship yourself, it will finally lead to what you desire. An endless self-absorption. An eternal existence cut off from the goodness of God, separated from the presence of God, and devoid of all joy and love. Those very things that God designed for you and for me to experience. But you don't have to follow the example of Herod. You do not have to deny worship to the Creator who was born into His creation. You can discover once again, or maybe for the first time, what the Magi did. So from the denial of worship to the reality of worship. The reality of worship. After leaving Herod's presence in Jerusalem, the star reappeared, and the Magi followed it to Bethlehem. And there was no doubt whether they were in the right place because verse 9, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. The Magi arriving months after the actual birth of Jesus arrive at the house where Mary, Joseph, and the baby are still living in Bethlehem. Perhaps they thought about resettling there permanently. After all, 
they could avoid some of the scandals swirling around Mary's pregnancy that would continue to linger in the air of their hometown of Nazareth. But they would eventually return there, as Matthew 2.23 tells us. He, Jesus, shall be called a Nazarene. For now, the Magi, seeing the star, has somehow pinpointed the exact house where the king resides. Verse 10, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is anticipation of worship. Do you feel it? When you prepare to worship the Lord, whether it be through corporate gatherings or personal prayer, do you rejoice greatly? Are you excited? Maybe you say to yourself, the difference is the Magi were about to literally lay their eyes upon the Son of God clothed in human flesh. Yes, that's true, but as a Christian... On this side of the birth, death, and resurrection, you have an ability to see Jesus that is greater than physical sight. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. You, if you have believed Jesus died the death you deserved and rose to give you a new life you don't deserve, you see what the Magi could not see. They saw the potential of the child. You see the reality. Worship is not exterior, it is interior. It occurs when the heart is overwhelmed by God And in response, you fall at the feet of Jesus. And that is what the Magi literally did. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. The word here translated worship means to bow down or to prostrate oneself before the object of honor. They fell to the ground. The reality of worship is living your life in a continual state of bowing down before the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes this is physical, but all the time it is a position of the heart. In the future words of a grown Jesus, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. It's John 4, 23. We see in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Matthew, then opening their treasures. The Magi had come a great distance. They'd consumed much time. They'd expended vast amounts of energy so that they could open their treasures before Jesus. We often focus on the items in question here, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, when we think about these gifts. And they do each have their place and they each have their significance. But let's not miss the fact that these are treasured possessions. They are treasures. Jesus will later say 
recorded in the same gospel, the gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure this morning? The wise men laid their treasures at the feet of Jesus. This was their act of worship. This revealed their hearts. Their hearts belonged to the Lord Jesus because now their treasures belonged to Him. The bowing, that was their external act of worship. Giving their treasures was also external, but it revealed something much deeper. It revealed the heart. You see, you can go through the motions of worship, but what you do with that which you value reveals the reality of your worship. What are you doing with what you treasure the most? Maybe for you it's your possessions. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your focus. Maybe it's your goals. What are you doing with what you treasure the most? Whatever your treasure is, if you love Jesus, you will lay it at His feet. This doesn't mean that you will lose it. It means the reverse. You will actually receive. Maybe not in the same form, but in a form that glorifies God and that declares His worth. When you worship yourself, when you hoard your time and your energy and your possessions, you will enjoy all those things for a season. Then you will lose them forever. When you worship the Lord Jesus, born as a man, so that He could die as a man, so that He could rise as a man, so that He could save men, when you worship Him, you will only lose to gain. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you willing to lose? What you are willing to lose is the test of your worship. Lay your treasures at the feet of Jesus. Experience the reality of true worship. Count it all loss. Trust that what you will receive in exchange far exceeds anything that you will ever lose. Because what you receive back is the very life of God flowing through you, working in you, sealing you for eternity. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. What is the focus of your worship this morning? It will reveal whether or not you have the life of the Son. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the example of these magi, of these men who were truly wise because... They knew that the, the Son, the child, your Son, the Lord Jesus, deserved that which they treasured, and they laid it at His feet.
Father, help us to do the same as we seek to experience the reality of worshiping in spirit and in truth this day and in the year to come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.